turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Before we start, I would like to thank publicly all those who came over to our house and helped us move my books from the barn into the house. And that's all that I expected actually to be done, but the, the ladies cleaned every book and then placed them in order on the shelves. And I have a little bit of reorganization to do, but not much. And uh, what, a, what a job everybody did. Uh, I know there, there are some sore people here this morning moving those big boxes of books. Uh, Uncle Joe asked me how many I had. And I've never personally counted them, but one of my daughters counted them. And I have a little over a 1,000 commentaries and theological books. And uh, I feel like I moved every one of them. I know I didn't. There are other people who did uh, a lot more work than what I did. But what a blessing to be able to have my books back on the shelves again and uh, accessible. Now, you know what that means. That means I can preach a lot longer because I got more to say. <laughs> uh, not really. Matthew chapter 5, if you would, please. We've started to look at verse 17, and we're going to actually move into verse 18 today. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no way pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So to, to sum up very quickly, Christ fulfills the law in four ways. One, he, of course, carries out, fulfills predictive prophecy. He obeyed it on our behalf. He bore its penalty, which was death. He became a curse for us. And he's fulfilling it in us today in that it is now written on our hearts. The law is fulfilled in us through Christ. He gives us his righteousness. And then through the person and power of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to keep the true nature and character of the law. Now, of course, we said that there were some theological ramifications from this, the relation of the law to the gospel. The law required perfect obedience, and its penalty for transgressing the law, the law, any part of it, even one point of it, was death. Christ obeyed it perfectly for us in our place, and that then is imputed to us. His perfect obedience is imputed to us when we believe on him. Now, in the following verses, all the way to chapter 7 and verse 12 of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to show us what is the true nature of the law. And it is not just an external observance of the law, but it's an internal matter of the heart. D.A. Carson said, and I quote, he is showing the direction in which it, the law, points on the basis of his own authority. So Jesus presents himself as the prophetic end 
or the goal of the Old Testament. And the result of this is that he and he alone is the only authoritative interpreter of it. And it is interpreted in the person, the works, and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament then only has significance in the light of the person of Christ. And it continues as authoritative. It continues as valid only as it is interpreted in the light of the person of Christ. And so the scriptures continue to be valid and authoritative in him. They still have a purpose, but that purpose finds its interpretive key in the person of Christ. Now, we cannot ignore the Old Testament. Or can we divorce it from the New Testament? We need the Old Testament. The Old Testament was not an end in itself. In fact, the Old Testament would be incomplete without Christ and without the New Testament. They were preparatory to the coming of Messiah. After his coming, they are valid, they are authoritative in him as they are rightly understood in relation to God's plan in Christ. In fact, Old Testament interpretation is affected by how we understand verse 17. And so the Old Testament is not irrelevant to us. Neither is the law of God irrelevant to us. Nor is the moral law of God set aside. So let's move into verse 18, finally. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no way pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now this verse is going to give us two things. It's going to give us the duration of Old Testament authority, and it's going to give us the extent of Old Testament authority. So let's talk about the duration of Old Testament authority. The law stays intact, the law stays authoritative, and the law is unchangeable. It is immutable. Notice how Jesus starts this, for verily. Notice that word verily. A lot of people like to translate that word verily by the word amen. That's possible. What's basically being said here is what follows are ideas of truth and faithfulness. It lets us know that what is about to be spoken is of the utmost importance. That word verily emphasizes the words that follow. In other words, the words to follow express a truth or fact that we need to embrace and because it is a very important one. And so the person using this word, verily, of course, is Jesus himself. And he is in himself authoritative. That is what gives this statement the authority that draws that this word draws our attention to. And then he says, I say unto you, for verily I say unto you. Again, calling our attention to what follows as being important, but Jesus is the one who is speaking. And he is setting forth this statement. Verily I say unto you, he is setting forth this statement with the fullest authority of the Son of God. A way to emphasize this or translate it as this, I say to you absolutely without qualification and with the fullest authority. That tells you that what is about to be said is very, very important. And then notice the word for, for verily 
I say unto you. That is letting us know that there's a connection between verse 18 and verse 17. It is going to be an explanation and it's going to be a confirmation of verse 17. It gives us the reason for verse 17. Till heaven and earth pass. Now, can you think of anything, at least to us, that is more stable than heaven and earth? In all of our existence in this world, I mean, there is nothing more stable in all of creation than heaven and earth. Now, sometimes it kind of gets disrupted in our experience of it through hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes. But there is nothing in creation that is more stable than heaven and earth. When I was born, heaven and earth were here. When I die, guess what's going to remain? Heaven and earth. And generations have come and gone, but yet heaven and earth have existed. They're the most stable of all creation. It's almost a you can almost say it this way, till the end of the age. Till the end of the age. The end of time or the end of physical existence. In other words, you could say it this way, never as long as this present world exists. Well, what is going what's going to happen in this verse, verse 18? So the Old Testament continues to be valid and authoritative till this time. Well, that's a comfort, isn't it? They can take away our Bibles, but what is written in it is still going to occur. It's still going to be fulfilled. They can outlaw the Bible, but it won't negate its truth. Or it won't stop from God fulfilling his plan and his will. The Old Testament will continue to be valid and authoritative till this time, the end of all created things, the end of the age. So the Old Testament still has a function, still has a purpose till the end of time. Not one part, notice that's what this verse is talking about, not one part is going to drop from the Old Testament scriptures until every part, every iota of it has been fulfilled. You know what's interesting when you say it that way, that not even the parts that have been filled will pass away. That's what this verse is saying. And so even though the clean and the unclean laws about in, in relation to food, have been fulfilled and Gentiles being saved, they still remain valid, they still remain authoritative, and they still remain something that we can use to teach with through the person of Christ. And what this means is that God's word is completely absolute. It will never be changed, or any of it will ever be lost. Any of it, none of it will, be, will pass away. The demands of the law what has been given to us in what we call the Old Testament, they are permanent. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no way pass from the law. For how long? Till all be fulfilled. Notice that, all be fulfilled. Underline that word all. There is not a part of the Old Testament, especially in relation to Christ, his ministry, what God has promised to the nation of Israel, None of it will pass away 
it will all, every part, be fulfilled. I read this and I see it and I say, God's word is more permanent than creation itself. I want you to look, actually listen to what Matthew 24, 35 says. Jesus Christ even equated his words with that of the Old Testament scriptures. Matthew 24, 35 says this. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So even the words of Jesus Christ and all of the Bible are in effect, valid, authoritative for us today until heaven and earth pass away. And every part will be fulfilled. All will be fulfilled. All will be accomplished. All will be carried out. All will come to pass. Now the word here fulfilled in verse 18 is different from the word fulfilled in verse 17. It basically means until it all happens, until it all comes to pass or takes place. So nothing will pass from the law or the prophets until everything comes to pass. Every promise that God has made will be fulfilled. So this is the true duration. Its duration covers till the end of time and has areas to be fulfilled until that time. For instance, the Gentiles being saved. And God knows when that last Gentile will be saved. And he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. The second coming of Christ will be fulfilled. He will set his foot on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives will cleave in two, and Jerusalem will become a seaport. The millennial kingdom will be fulfilled. And the restoration and salvation of the na nation of Israel will be fulfilled. And there are more. These are just a few that I picked out. But all will be fulfilled. This idea of all be fulfilled, till all be fulfilled, it's qualifying the heaven and the earth statement. It, exp it explains why heaven and earth will not pass away while they're still in existence, because there are still things to be fulfilled. In other words, it's telling us how the law remains valid. Every part of it's going to be fulfilled. Have I said that enough times and enough ways for us to get the point? Everything that's been prophesied about will take place. Not one jot or one tittle shall fail to be accomplished. And that ought to be a comfort to us. All of God's purposes, as revealed in the Old Testament, will take place. Every jot, every tittle will be accomplished. Every jot, every tittle remains. Every jot, every tittle will not pass away. None of it. God's redemptive purposes in relation to the Gentiles, God's redemptive purposes in relation to the nation of Israel will all be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So that is the duration of Old Testament authority. What is the extent of Old Testament authority. 
Nothing is going to disappear from the law. Notice how it's worded. Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no way pass from the law. Now we read that and we wonder what in the world is a jot and what in the world is a tittle. A jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It refers to the Hebrew letter Y-O-D, Yod, which is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It kind of looks like an upside-down comma or apostrophe. It's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You know how many there are in the Old Testament? 66,420. Now, I didn't count every one. But there are over 66,000 jots in the Old Testament. You know, and it would seem like losing one of that number wouldn't be such a big matter. But Jesus said, not one of those 66,420 of those little jots will pass away from the law until every one of them has been fulfilled. So what's a tittle? This would be the small stroke of a pen that distinguishes some letters from others. It's the tiniest part of a letter or the curve of a, of a letter. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Let me see if I can point this out. Psalm 119 and verse 9. And Psalm 119 and verse 81. Now, if you have a Bible, the, the, the Psalm 119 is, um, I think acrostic is the right word. It takes, takes a, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and then every word of that particular verse under that paragraph starts with that Hebrew letter. Right? So do you have the, the Hebrew letter designations in your Bible over each of the sections? Okay. So Psalm 119.9 is the Hebrew uh, letter Beth, right? Psalm 119, verse 81 is the Hebrew letter Kaf. You see the difference between that? It's a little bit of a curve on the vertical portion. Instead of being more straight, like it is from the top, from the top going down, it's a little curve. In essence, that's the tittle. It's just the slight stroke of a pen from straight to curve that, that distinguishes between one letter and another. And that's the difference between the bet and the cap in the Hebrew alphabet. You know, let's put it in today's vernacular, all right? We would say not one dot of an I or cross of a T will pass from the law until all be fulfilled. The combination of these terms together means that Jesus is teaching the authority of the Old Testament scripture to every stroke of the pen the smallest stroke of the pen. And those scriptures will continue to be valid and authoritative until every stroke, every little jot, every little tittle has been accomplished. Now I look at that and other theologians look at that and they say, look at the high view of scripture that Jesus had. First of all, he is showing us that the scriptures are immutable, unchangeable, and valid for all of time. 
down to the least stroke of the pen. Now, we're holding an English Bible. The Hebrew scribes were very careful when they copied Scripture. And they did it under some of the hardest circumstances, by candlelight usually. But when they got done with the end of a page, copying you know, some of the Old Testament scriptures, they would count every single letter. Sometimes they would do that by the line. But when they got to the bottom... And when they counted the original, and they were off by one character on the copy, they didn't say, oh, well, that's okay. They destroyed the copy that they just made. We have, in the Old Testament, one of the most well-preserved books in all of history. And it is unchangeable. It is immutable. They are eternal, and they are our absolute authority. And what Jesus is claiming and has claimed throughout the Gospels in various places is that the Old Testament is the Word of God. And each part of the Bible is inspired, even the smallest details. And Scripture finds its fullest meaning in the purpose of Christ, as he is stating in these two verses. Verse 17 dealt with the nature of the Old Testament in relation to Jesus. Verse 18 deals with the how much and for how long the Old Testament is valid, authoritative, and will continue. And there's no question. It's pretty clear. Till heaven and earth pass, they remain intact, valid, and authoritative in Christ Jesus. Now, have I said that enough for us to understand Jesus' high view of Scripture and how they will be interpreted in his person, his works, and his words, and he will fulfill every part of it? Now, what I want to do is what is called an excursus. I want to deal with the law because that is what is being dealt with in these two verses. What was the purpose? What is the purpose of the law? I've hinted at this part of the way in parts of the sermon. But what is the purpose and what is the purpose of the law? Turn to Galatians chapter 3. I feel this is necessary because basically I'm telling you that the law is still valid, it's still authoritative, it still has purpose as we interpret it in Christ. But what was and what is, notice the word is, what is the purpose of the law? Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. Wherefore then serveth the law, Paul asks. It was added because of transgression. To the seed should come to whom the promise was made. 
And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? And he answers, God forbid, may it never be. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. Of course, we know that's not true. It can't happen. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Verse 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster or tutor to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the purpose of the law was and is to bring people to Jesus Christ. How? How does that happen? Well, one of the purposes of the law is to show us sin. We would not know what sin was if it was not for the law. It was added because of transgressions, to give sin its character, if you would. And what is transgression? It is rebelling against the authority of God laid out in his law. Now, because of the law, sin can be imputed to people. Romans chapter 5, verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. So sin can now be imputed. Before the law, sin was not imputed, but uh, it wasn't put to man's account. Now that the law is here, sin not only is shown to be transgressing the law, rebelling against God, but it is imputed to a man when he breaks God's law. It gives him personal guilt. What else does the law do when it shows us sin? And Matt said it this morning, I think, when we're talking about the, the fall. The law awakens in us that maddened enmity and rebellion within us that we have against God and his law. The law does that. Romans 7, 8, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for, for apart from the law, sin was dead. And so the law actually, you know what, you tell a child, don't touch that. What's he do? I'm going to touch it just because. I'm going to touch it just because you told me not to touch it. Isn't that what the law does to us? It awakens that maddened enmity. The sin nature begins to boil within us. And we're actually... By the law, we're provoked to transgress by the very law which told us not to transgress. Thus, the law proves what? We're sinners in rebellion against God. And it shows us that our inner nature is cor totally corrupt. Romans 7, 11 through 13. The law does that. And so when the law does that, it brings us to Christ, who's the remedy for what we are, sinners. The law shows us that all of us are sinners. Uh, Romans chapter 3, 
verses 19 and 20, if you would, please. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, uh, sorry, verse 19. Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. If we stop preaching the law, we miss an important part of being, bringing people to Christ. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Verse 20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's how we know we're sinners. Same chapter, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the law shows us that we're all sinners. Folks, the law is a ministry of condemnation and death, and it carries a divine curse. Verse 19, now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 9, listen to this. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious. Now, what Paul is saying is that, that we're talking about the law that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. And he's saying that was glorious. So that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly at the face of Moses. Remember, his face was shining because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry here, now listen to this, for if the ministry of condemnation had glory, he's talking about the law, the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. So he's calling the law given to Moses, engraved upon those stones, a ministry of condemnation and a ministry of death. Galatians 3.10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So the, the law becomes a ministry of condemnation, a ministry of death, and it carries with it the divine curse for transgressing it. So the law shows us that all are sinners. It is by the law that we know what sin is. It is by the law that we know we have broken it, transgressed it. But I want you to understand this. Now, don't get me wrong now. The law was temporary in regards to salvation. The law was temporary till Christ should come. I read those verses. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. And then Romans 10.4, for Christ, very important verse here, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The word end there means that Christ is the culmination. The authority of the law of Moses is at an end in the area of trying to be related to God through it. We are now related to God through Christ. Like a race, the finishing line is the termination of the race, the goal of the race. The goal of the law was to bring us to the person, the works, and the words of Jesus Christ. 
Notice that word for in Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The purpose or result of Christ being the end of the law is that now that righteousness is by faith. We don't have to try to keep the law to gain a righteousness which is acceptable to God. We go to Christ by faith and we're given a righteousness which we can't earn ourselves. What did Christ do? The law was temporary till he should come. He bore the curse of the law for those who would believe on him. And so he redeems us, believers, from the curse and the dominion of the law as a means of salvation. That's important to distinguish because the law is still written in our hearts. But we are not trying to obey the law or enact it out in our lives, even the true nature of the law, to try to gain God's favor. Christ did that for us. The law showed that there was only one way of escape. And so the law brings people to Christ because it shuts men up to their only hope, which is Jesus Christ. Hence, the law is a schoolmaster or a tutor to bring us to Christ. Also, as we think about the law, the law shows the true character of God's demands. And Jesus is going to expound on that here in the Sermon on the Mount. The law also shows us the exceeding sinfulness of sin. You remember, I, I remember looking at an, uh, an interview with a number of pastors. I think John MacArthur was there. Uh, R.C. Sproul was there. And um, I can't even remember the question, but I remember R.C. Sproul's response. Somebody asked a question around, along the lines of, well, it was no big deal that Adam disobeyed God. Well, what's the big deal? And R.C. Sproul said, what is wrong with you people? Sin is rebellion against God, and the law shows us the exceeding sinfulness of sin. The law was given to show men that they could never justify themselves before a holy God. And if we don't understand paragraph number one, under the fall in the, London, the Second London Baptist Confession and what the results of that fall mean for mankind. We don't understand sin as God sees it. You can't be saved. You cannot be saved if you don't understand that you rebelled against the holy God and broke his law. So why are the Old Testament scriptures, the law especially, still valid and authoritative for today? Well, they still have purpose to bring people to Christ. Paul said in Romans 3.31, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And this is the Apostle Paul talking. We establish the, wall, the law. We also have a verse like 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be uh, complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
the law is still valid and authoritative today. The law is a judge, according to Romans 2, 12 through 15. What's interesting is that the apostles themselves, in writing the New Testament under inspiration, actually used the Old Testament as authoritative in their teaching. In fact, Brother Matt gave me a book. can't do it with one hand. It's about this thick. The New Testament use of the Old Testament scriptures. It's an incredible book. It's a commentary on how the writers of the New Testament used the Old Testament in their writings. Let me just show you a couple of them here. 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17, 18, and 19. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let me preface this by saying I am not... <laughs> Anytime a pastor reads this, it's difficult. You'll see why. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word or do and doctrine. In other words, take care of your pastor, which you folks do. I'm not saying you don't do that. But here's why I wanted to read this verse. He, he goes to the Old Testament law, for the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his, of his reward. He's referring to a part of the Old Testament where they were not allowed, they would, you know, if they were treading out the grain, my understanding of this is they would have a couple of oxen yoked together, and they would be tied together, and they would be going in a circle in these stone pits or whatever they used. And they were not allowed to put a muzzle on the ox lest he eat some of the grain that they were trying to break up. Basically, they're saying the laborer is worthy of his hire. Let the ox eat. He's not going to eat your profits away. Under the same manner, look how they're using that scripture to prove that the, that the church should be taking care of their pastor. So they appeal to the Old Testament law to make a point. And it is a proper and authoritative use of the law. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you would please. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8. Oh, by the way, in that passage, verse 19 says, don't, accept, don't receive an accusation against an elder except by what? Two or three witnesses. That's based upon the law. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8. We'll start in verse 7. Who goeth to war at any time at his own expense? Who planteth the vineyard and eateth not of its fruit? Or who feedeth the flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the grain. Doth God take care for the oxen? And, of course, yeah, he does. So the point is, is they're, re, they're appealing to the Old Testament law. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.34, one last example. 1 Paul says to the church at Corinth, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience. And here's what I wanted to get to, as also saith the law. 
as also saith the law. And so the apostles, in writing the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, used the Old Testament and the Old Testament law and parts that we wouldn't even think apply, and they used those to prove their point. And so Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures does not set it aside, but it confirms its truthfulness, it confirms its authoritativeness, and it's still useful for its purpose in pointing to Christ. It's still useful in bringing people to Christ, the law being our schoolmaster, to bring people to Christ. It's still useful in showing people that they are sinners, they've transgressed the law of God, and then it looked forward. Today it helps us to substantiate and prove the authenticity and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now what parts of the law have been fulfilled? I think you can go through your minds and come up with some examples of what's been fulfilled. The ceremonial and judicial, but of course the moral law has not been fulfilled. That's something that is ongoing. So here's the proof. Go to the book of Hebrews, which you're reading through. The sacrifice of Christ. What happened when Christ died on the cross? Something that shocked them all. What happened when he died on the cross? The veil in the temple was what? It was torn in two from where? The top to the bottom. Now that's not something that somebody could do by strings. My understanding of the veil in the temple is that thing that was at least 12 inches thick. What God was showing us is now the way into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, had been accomplished by Jesus Christ. Rent in two from the top to the bottom. Meaning no, man, no mere man could do that. Then you have the teaching in the book of Hebrews that Jesus sacrificed his high priestly office have been fulfilled in the person of Christ. How about the destruction of Jerusalem? The times of the Gentiles ushered in. Food restrictions abolished because their purpose has been fulfilled. I've got verses to back all these up. Matthew 27, 51. Ephesians 2, 13 to 18 talks about Jesus Christ being the veil. Hebrews 6, 19. Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. The point is, folks, these have been fulfilled in the person of Christ. When he died on that cross, all the prophecies, 300 some of them, were all fulfilled in his person, in his work of his earthly ministry. And yet, every one of those prophecies remained valid, authoritative, and will not pass from the law until every part has been carried out by the person of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your law. and We thank you that you used your law to bring us to yourself. You've shown us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. Shown us how sinful you really were. And how we thank you today that you accomplished for us what we could not do for ourselves. And you have given us your righteousness 
a righteousness that is perfect and complete. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.